Chapter 14 of Vietnam, The Advisory Years to 1965 by Robert Futrell and Martin Blumenson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 14, Op Bach and Related Matters. American support arrested many adverse trends in Vietnam, and by May 1962, Secretary of Defense McNamara was looking ahead to the end of the counterinsurgency. As he said at his conference in Honolulu, the military assistance program for Vietnam would then be somewhere between $50 million and $75 million a year. McNamara was hoping to phase out the war in Vietnam and in the near future to send home major U.S. combat, advisory, and logistic activities. No doubt heartened by the signing of a new agreement on Laos, he directed General Harkins, MACV commander, to draw up a program. The plan would prepare Vietnamese armed forces to fight and win the war themselves, so that a systematic withdrawal of American forces could be geared to the headway made. Six months ago, said the Defense Secretary, we had practically nothing, and we have made tremendous progress to date. However, we have been concentrating on short-term crash-type actions and now must look ahead to a carefully conceived long-range program. He then asked how long it would take to eliminate the Viet Cong as a disturbing force. General Harkins replied, about one year from the time that we are able to get the Vietnamese fully operational and really pressing the VC in all areas. Assuming that it would take about three years to bring the Viet Cong under control, the secretary directed Harkins to plan on this basis. Besides training the Vietnamese to manage the war themselves, Harkins was to arrange a turnover of materiel to them. The objective, McNamara said, is to give SVN an adequate military capability without the need for special U.S. military assistance. The size of the American contributions was substantial. By mid-August, there would be 11,412 U.S. personnel in Vietnam. 2,282 Air Force, 7,946 Army, 643 Navy, and 541 Marine Corps. Of the $767 million in material programs since 1956, more than $600 million had been delivered. Airfields refurbished or set to be included Tansanut, Benhua, Pleiku, Natrang, Da Nang, Quinon, Bametu, Hue, and Tuehua. A like upgrading of land and naval facilities was underway. The military assistance program, subject to congressional approval, called for $177 million in fiscal year 1962 and $167 million the next year. Over and above these totals, the United States had given Vietnam over $1.5 billion for roads, railways, electric lines, water, communications, hospitals, and schools. U.S. advisors operated from Joint General Staff to battalion level, and some worked with province chiefs and training centers. Farmgate had trained and certified sufficient Vietnamese crews to man a second fighter squadron that flew missions out of Nha Trang. The air staff had approved sending four L-28s to Farmgate for forward air controller duty. Two more glass-nosed B-26s were on hand for reconnaissance. Mule Train was supplied a second C-123 squadron to achieve the quick reaction General LeMay desired. 
Ignoring these hopeful signs, LeMay remained skeptical. The Air Force Chief's disagreement with the war strategy was widely known among the top U.S. leaders, and Admiral Felt alluded to it at the May Secretary of Defense Conference. General O'Donnell, PACAF Commander-in-Chief, was disappointed with the emphasis on politics and economics at the conference. So many civilians were there that he could not make his points. Instead of preparing for victory in three years, he wanted to urge actions at once. Better utilization of available air in South Vietnam, improved airlift management, and a three-star slot for the Air Force deputy to Harkins. General Anthus told the conferees that the basic stumbling block to expanding the Vietnamese Air Force, a precondition to removing U.S. Air Force elements, was the shortage of pilots. There was no debate on this. What mattered was that McNamara had set 1965 as the planning date for ending U.S. involvement in Vietnam, and Harkins needed to make it possible. By September, MACV prepared a national campaign plan as a guide. After briefing Mr. McNamara in October, General Harkins presented the plan to the Joint General Staff and the Vietnamese President. Diem informally approved the blueprint in principle, and on November 26th did so formally. No immediate implementation followed, but rather a discussion of when execution should begin. Not really a series of maneuvers, the plan was more an organizational and conceptual framework, a setting for the process of rooting out the guerrillas. A key provision was the restructuring of the Vietnamese armed forces. This would deprive provincial chiefs of control over paramilitary forces in their areas and of their freedom to appeal directly to Diem. Placing the paramilitary forces squarely in the military chain of command would do away with the provincial chiefs' private armies. Sinkpak harbored reservations as to the costs and the ability of the Vietnamese to train sufficient personnel in time, and MACV revised the plan in December 1962 and again in early 1963. The plan's intelligence annex contained merely territorial data and a map of what MACV thought were the Viet Cong tactical zones and secret bases. Missing was an enemy order of battle. The Joint Chiefs nevertheless approved the plan on March 4, 1963. They recognized that success hinged on the parallel development of many mutual supporting programs, meant to lead 90% of the native population to identify with the Diem government. The trouble was that many programs lay outside the military sphere. Civilian agencies were to work on political, economic, and social problems, and much would rest on additional deficit spending by the Vietnamese government. There were no doubts expressed on Diem's administration or the course of the war. The air staff, however, wondered where the government could find enough trainees to fill the pilot spaces. These seemed to be mere details. More to the point was Admiral Felt's comment that Diem had finally delegated operational authority to his military commanders. The National Campaign Plan called for nine regular divisions plus other Vietnamese units, a total ground combat force of about 51 divisions. Operating under four Autonomous Corps Tactical Zone Field Commanders, these troops were to decimate local Viet Cong elements, cut off replacements, and destroy supply, communications, control, and support facilities. The Communists would first be hemmed into specific areas, 
Next would come a general offensive to annihilate them by simultaneous explosion operations in the four core zones. This explosion of effort was supposed to drive the Viet Cong out of the country within a year. Sounds reminiscent of Korea, of course, someone said, referring to General MacArthur's famous communique, out of the trenches by Christmas. General Weed, MACV chief of staff, estimated that the military effort to at least drive VC underground should be concluded in one to two years. It would then be up to GVN, government of Vietnam, to take over to win minds of people, improve economy, conduct civic action, etc. According to General Harkins, the plan could eliminate the Viet Cong as early as 1963. President Diem apparently believed so too, but later would feel that the strategic Hamlet program first had to be completed. This could not be done before the spring of 1964. Diem reorganized the military. In activating the Central Field Command, he divided Vietnam into four core tactical zones, created the new Four Corps in the Mekong Delta with headquarters at Canto, and established the capital military district around Saigon. The core tactical zone commanders would be given greater responsibilities. They were to exercise operational control, not only over their ground forces, but over supporting Vietnamese Air Force elements as well. Exactly what control the 2nd Air Division commander was to have over air operations was unstated, but General Anthus protested placing air power in the hands of the Corps commanders. He wanted, as always, a strong tactical air control system. A related issue was how to compute the air requirements for the explosion ground operations. Preliminary estimates showed a doubled strikes or T-rate along with an upturn in calls for reconnaissance, target spotting and identification, and aerial resupply. How much and how fast the Vietnamese Air Force could be expanded was the central question. General Rowland, chief of the MAG Air Force section, outlined an ambitious program. Besides a second 86 fighter squadron in fiscal year 1964, he projected two more fighter squadrons in fiscal year 1966. Both would be equipped with the Northrop N-156 light jet fighter, later designated the F-5 Freedom Fighter. Rowland envisioned the replacement of the T-28s in one squadron and the A-1Hs in another with F-5 sometime between 1966 and 1968. He called for a total of nine L-19 liaison squadrons, one for each regular ground division, and four helicopter squadrons. He visualized air reconnaissance handled by a squadron of four RT-33s and 18 RT-28s. Air transport would be performed by a single squadron of C-47s during fiscal year 1965 and by two C-123 squadrons, one each in 1965 and 1968. This program was eventually trimmed. The nine liaison squadrons, for example, were cut to four. Rowland also pointed out the advantage of pilot training in Vietnam. In October, a detachment of the Air Training Command was scheduled for movement to open an H-19 helicopter pilot training program at Tansanut. Two months later, a second detachment was dispatched to give liaison pilot training at Nha Trang. To meet the rise in air requirements envisaged by the National Campaign Plan, General Anthus in October and November 1962 asked for these new squadrons one T-28, 25 aircraft, 
one B-26, 25 planes, a third C-123 at least, two RF-101, two RB-26, and three liaison. Anthus justified the liaison units on several grounds. General Rowland's program had been whittled down. A current shortage of forward air control craft had delayed or referred many strike missions, and a step-up in visual reconnaissance and convoy cover could be foreseen. The MACV J-4 set forth airlift requirements in support of the National Campaign Plan. His ideas of wholesale and retail operations resembled Army thinking. He specified sea lift to five port areas, then C-123 lift to various airfields where U-1 otters, CV-2 caribous, and helicopters working with the Corps were to pick up the cargo for ultimate delivery. He estimated having to move 36,000 short tons per month by air, 4.3 million ton miles of airlift. This was almost twice the capacity of the two C-123 squadrons and the CV-2 company already in Vietnam. In December, General Harkins requested two more C-123 squadrons, 32 aircraft, and an additional CV-2 company, 16 planes, for arrival in the first three months of 1963. At first, the Civilian Irregular Defense Group program was managed out of the American Embassy by the CIA. Later, the program went under MACV and the U.S. Army Special Forces, provisional, formed at Natrang on September 15, 1962. Working through the Tactical Air Control System and the Air Operations Center, Farmgate had serviced these units. While General Anthus wished to continue the practice, General Harkins preferred to give the Special Forces their own organic airlift and fire support, a miniature tactical air force. Harkins was thinking of setting aside four L-20s or L-28s for liaison, four CV-2 caribous for airlift, and 12 UH-1 armed helicopters and four OV-1 Mohawks for strikes. These crafts were to be controlled by the Special Forces Commander at Natrang. General Anthus dissented on the ground that the 24 aircraft would displace the Vietnamese planes at Natrang. He remarked that every ground unit could not have its own separate air force. Admiral Felt ruled in favor of central control of air support. He expressly said that he would allow no assignment of air power direct to the Vietnamese irregulars or to the U.S. Special Forces. Harkins next proposed to use Air America contract airlift for this purpose. In the end, a compromise was arranged. The Mohawks and Caribous disappeared from the proposal. With Defense Secretary McNamara's approval, the secretaries of the Army and Air Force sent 12 non-organic helicopters and four liaison planes to Vietnam for the Special Forces to enable team chiefs to visit remote and otherwise inaccessible posts. Harkins agreed to use the other craft within the tactical air control system. But in December, and over Felt's objections, he withdrew the four Army caribou transports from the Southeast Asia Military Airlift System and committed them to direct support of the Special Forces. Preliminary explosion operations got underway in late October 1962. Ranger forces gathered for a penetration into Viet Cong Zone D in Phuc Long, Ben Long, and Phuc Thanh provinces, called a Special Tactical Zone. In spite of poor weather and deficient target marking, 86s on November 20th conducted pre-landing bombardment. 
five mule-trained C-123s, and 12 Vietnamese C-47s dropped 500 paratroopers at a site selected as a base camp on the eastern edge of Zone D. On December 19th, troops moved into Zone D, where double tree canopy cover towered to 80 feet. Planes flew eight interdiction strikes and also close support missions. On the 23rd, a B-26 dropped napalm, and on January 1st, 1963, a B-26 and two T-28s attacked with general purpose bombs. Results in this thickly forested but fairly dry terrain turned out better than expected. An army advisor who visited four interdiction targets found proof of a hasty enemy retreat. Rockets and 50 caliber rounds had pierced the jungle canopy, and 500-pound bombs had smashed trees to scatter lethal wood fragments. There were 10 fresh Viet Cong graves. In three weeks, the Rangers killed 62 Viet Cong and took 10 prisoners, at a cost of 12 killed and 68 wounded. When a report revealed a large Viet Cong assembly east of the city of Tainin in northern Tainin province, three corps hurriedly launched a three-day Helleborn assault by the 5th Division on December 19th. The size of the enemy force was overstated, but the troops caught three Viet Cong. The prisoners gave the locations, functions, and staffing of 12 headquarters of the National Liberation Front. After special agents verified this information, three corps asked the Joint General Staff to authorize a three-day strike against the headquarters. Most of the 12 lay within 10 miles of the Cambodian border, too close in the opinion of Americans. The Joint General Staff disapproved the air attacks, but President Diem considered the chance too attractive. He set the operation for January 2, 1963. The operation was planned to kick off with a heavy hour-long air attack against nine targets most distant from the border. Some delayed action bombs would be used. Next was to be a drop of 1,250 paratroops and a helicopter landing of a ranger battalion covered by light strafing attacks. The fighters would fly airborne alert from daybreak to dark, with C-47s helping out through the night. President Diem wanted American pilots to keep an eye on Vietnamese troops and prevent them from straying across the border into Cambodia, so that advance reconnaissance flights would not warn the enemy key commanders flew over the terrain in a C-123. The entire force of 26 Vietnamese 86s and Farmgate's 16 B-26s and 24 T-28s at Ben Hoa engaged in the operation. Their day-long support was called splendid. The paratroopers and rangers suffered nine casualties, but killed 76 Viet Cong and captured individual weapons and documents. Early assessments based on prisoner of war interrogations and on an intercepted Viet Cong radio message credited the airstrikes with killing about 400 persons. Later information coming from Cambodia raised the number to between 800 and 1,000. American observers praised the operation as the most successful ever undertaken in three corps, terming it an intelligent use of tactical air support. Overshadowing these encouraging successes was the failure near the village of Opbach in Four Corps. Opbach involved the 7th Division, reputed to have killed more Viet Cong in the Mekong Delta than any other division. So well had the 7th performed in the important plain of reeds that it appeared to have wrested control from the communists. The enemy leaders seemed on the point of pulling back their regular units to sanctuary bases.
Late in December 1962, intelligence pinpointed a Viet Cong radio in a relatively out-of-reach area near Op Bok. The village was situated in a complex of hamlets 35 miles southwest of Saigon and around 15 miles northwest of the 7th Division Command Post at Meito, capital of Din Tong Province. In this rice-growing delta region, canals, dikes, and dirt roads channeled movement. Villages and tree lines offered cover and concealment to defenders. Soft, fertile earth made digging foxholes easy, and paddies gave good fields of fire. Nearly a company of Viet Cong troops was suspected to be in position to protect the radio, which was supposed to transmit for the Viet Cong Central Office for South Vietnam. On December 29th, the newly appointed 7th Division commander decided to knock out this prize. He selected two battalions from different regiments, a company of mechanized infantry and M113 amphibious armored personnel carriers, a ranger company, and three battalions of artillery, two of 105mm and one of 155mm howitzers. A paramilitary provincial force of three battalions would help out. The division commander planned Helleborn landings north and west of Opbach, these troops to sweep south and meet the M113s rolling north. Lieutenant Colonel John P. Van, senior U.S. Army advisor, wished to start the operation at once to avert intelligence leaks. He suggested December 31st at the latest, but helicopters were not to be had before January 2nd, 1963. Major Herbert L. Prevost, a U.S. Air Force Air Liaison Officer, first learned of the operation on December 30th. He readied a plan for strike aircraft support, but discovered on the 31st that all available aircraft would be supporting the operation in northern Tainan province. The U.S. Army 93rd Helicopter Company nonetheless agreed to go ahead with the helicopter landings. It furnished 10 transport helicopters plus one UH-1B and four HU-1A helicopter gunships, armed with rockets and machine guns, to fly cover and fire support missions. At the final briefing on January 1st, Major Prevost accented the absence of fighter support. Perhaps, he suggested, the Air Operations Center would respond to emergency strike requests. He alerted the center to the possibility. The provincial troops deployed at 0630 on the 2nd of January, and the operation commenced shortly thereafter. Instead of meeting a Viet Cong company near Op Bok, 7th Division ran into a battalion. Armed with heavy machine guns, automatic rifles, and 60-millimeter mortars, the foe was dug in under the tree lines bordering the helicopter landing zones. The first three helicopter lifts from Tan Hep Airfield landed safely, but during the landing of the fourth, an H-21 was downed by enemy fire. The UH-1 gunship sought in vain to suppress the ground fire. They used up 8,400 rounds of 30 caliber and 7.62-millimeter machine gun ammunition, along with 102.75-inch rockets. An H-21 trying to rescue the crew of the downed helicopter was shot out of the sky, and a UH-1B was disabled, and it crashed. Two other damaged H-21s made it back to Tan Hiep. At 10.05, a Vietnamese L-19 over Op Bok radioed the Air Operations Center for help. The center diverted two 86s armed for strafing, and they arrived at 10.35. Afterwards, the center kept B-26s and T-28s 
also armed for strafing, continuously active in the Oppok area. These planes failed to quiet the enemy guns. Not until the arrival of a Farmgate B-26 at 1540 did things look up. This aircraft's repeated runs with napalm, bombs, rockets, and guns broke the Viet Cong defensive position near the village. By then, the communists had won the battle. They pinned down the Helleborn forces and put the armored company out of action by focusing fire on the gunners of the personnel carriers. The gunners were exposed from the waist up. The four corps commander and the senior U.S. Army advisor, Colonel Daniel B. Porter, Jr., had reached Tanhyep at noon. They suggested a paratrooper drop east of Apbok to block Viet Cong escape routes. The division commander and Colonel Van agreed, and that afternoon the Joint General Staff chose three paratrooper companies from nearby Tansanut. Boarding six C-123s, 319 troops floated down close to Apbok at 1815. Because their drop zone placed them west rather than east of the village, they were in no position to stem the enemy retreat. During the night, separate Vietnamese units engaged in firefights with one another while the Viet Cong battalion escaped with its wounded and all but four of its dead. As regular troops moved cautiously into Opbok the next day, advance elements came under the fire of friendly mortars. Five men were killed and 14 wounded. The final reckoning was 65 Vietnamese and three Americans killed, 100 Vietnamese and six U.S. advisors wounded, 14 helicopters hit by enemy fire, and five shot down. The Vietnamese captured two Viet Cong, found four bodies, and killed an estimated 100 enemy. Afterwards, the Viet Cong admitted 18 killed, 33 wounded, three missing, plus 29 civilians killed. Clearly, the combat had been poorly managed and poorly fought. The Vietnamese and Americans lost in prestige and in reputation for power. Colonel Van subsequently suggested that several Vietnamese officers should be relieved of command. He spoke bitterly to newsmen of wrong decisions during the battle. On General Harkin's orders, the Vietnamese Joint Operations Evaluation Group came up with the reasons for the Opbok defeat. There had been no prior air-ground planning and no fighter escort for cover. When Vietnamese Air Force and Farmgate strike aircraft were diverted to Opbok, the crews did not know the local situation. Communications between friendly forces had been deficient, and no fire support coordination center existed. Armed H-21s had tried to rescue downed crews before Viet Cong fire was silenced. Paratroopers dropped shortly before nightfall had been improperly loaded and briefed. They had fought friendly troops. Without waiting for the final report, Harkins asked the Vietnamese to relieve two commanders. To Admiral Felt, the unescorted helicopter operation at Op Bac was wrong. Visiting Vietnam, he spoke with Diem and senior Vietnamese and American officials. He told Harkins, Experience has taught us that the VC are not surprised by helicopter landings and are able to ambush helicopters. Felt could not understand how commanders could ignore the fundamentals of warfare by failing to prepare the landing area. He could not conceive how they could have decided to conduct a key operation when available air support was busy elsewhere. It was time that everyone learned that armed helicopters were no adequate substitute 
for fighter support. All helicopter lifts needed strike aircraft. When Felt questioned whether MACV was downgrading air activities, General Harkins explained that there were too few tactical aircraft in Vietnam to cover every Helleborn mission. As a matter of fact, he said 24 operations in the preceding month had been without air cover. General Anthus proposed exact procedures to make certain that Vietnamese ground commanders and U.S. Army helicopter companies coordinated helicopter assault actions. Only the Air Operations Center could assure that fighters preceded and protected every Helleborne landing. The Vietnamese Air Force could furnish Corps commanders with strafing, close air support, reconnaissance, photography, and airlift but centralized control over all air power guaranteed fast emergency reaction. That each Corps commander wielded virtually absolute control over air power within his boundaries led to peculiar situations. In January 1963, for example, air interdiction was out of the question in four Corps. The Corps commander simply refused such missions to avoid political repercussions if non-combatants were accidentally killed or wounded. On the 2nd of January, the I-Corps commander ordered no strikes to be flown without his personal approval. Inasmuch as he was often away from his headquarters at Da Nang, it was usually impossible to fill requests from the field for immediate help. Later that year, a new I-Corps commander used the Vietnamese C-47 flare ships as his personal transports. He assigned helicopters and liaison planes to divisions and task forces permanently, rather than in line with mission needs. The Joint General Staff required no advance notice from Corps on operations being planned and executed unless the commander wanted more aircraft from Saigon. Given these conditions, a well-coordinated countrywide air campaign against the Viet Cong was unthinkable. Also impeding well-integrated air operations was the U.S. Army practice of making aviation units an integral part of the ground forces. The bitterness of the roles and missions argument spilled over when General Anthus, several months later, pinned the failure at Oppbach on the Army's air concepts. He dubbed the Army a customer that is also a competitor. Seeing the specter of more Oppbachs to come, he said that in some ways it would be better if the Army suffered a few relatively minor reverses at this time. Certainly it would be better if their concept of close air support were discredited now in a relatively inexpensive way than to wait for the ultimate catastrophe their concept must lead us to at a time and place where we will not have the elasticity we presently enjoy. Admiral Felt also believed that the Air Operations Center and the Airlift Coordinating Board had to be fully exploited for combined and joint ground and air operations. He judged this the way to make best use of limited air resources and facilities. Until the Army air effort joins the club, General O'Donnell stated, with the intent to cooperate wholeheartedly in the achievement of valid operational objectives, there will not be unity in the air effort. The U.S. Air Force Element of Strike Command, a joint readiness force in the United States, proposed a return to World War II organizational procedures. That is, the Air Force would own and man air request communications down to Army battalion level. To expand communications for air liaison officers and forward air controllers, the air staff furnished 2nd Air Division with 20 contingency teams. 
each consisted of an airman operator and a commercial KWM-2A single sideband suitcase radio. Although messages were speeded to the Air Operations Center, there were too few teams to go around. General Anthus eventually suggested setting up an air request net within the Vietnamese ground forces. General O'Donnell felt sure that the tactical air control system had proved its worth in the battle for Op Bac. After all, it had diverted planes to aid Vietnamese troops at a critical time. With an air request net, he suggested, the system would be flexible enough to support the decentralized national campaign plan. General Harkins disagreed. He said geography and imperfect communications ruled out direct centralized control of the total air effort. Better, he thought, to commit teams of Vietnamese and U.S. Air Force strike aircraft to the core tactical zones and under their control. Harkins said the main function of the Joint Operations Center was to redistribute planes among the several zones according to the tempo of local operations. These and other factors induced MACV in March to form a flight service center and network at Tansanut, to which every military flight would report. General Harkins sought by this action to satisfy in part Admiral Felt's wish for General Anthus, the MACV Air Component Commander, to possess complete coordinating authority over air operations in Vietnam. Seeking to settle the matter once and for all, Admiral Felt compromised. He asked Harkins to operate U.S. Air Force aircraft in Vietnam under the tactical air control system. The Air Operations Center was to assign or allocate aircraft to the control of the tactical corps for fixed periods. Felt also requested Harkins to bring U.S. Army aviation units under the control system. Placing air operations under centralized control would prevent mutual interference, facilitate flight following, simplify air defense identification problems, and upgrade combat support. General Harkins responded that the tactical air control system had not the communications for precise coordination. In July, he gave the MACV J-3 Army Air Operations Section general supervision over U.S. Marine Corps and U.S. Army aviation. He designated the Marine Corps headquarters in I-Corps and the Army Aviation Battalion headquarters in the other Corps zones to direct their air operations. General Anthus protested the arrangement saying it would create two and perhaps five separate air control systems and separate air wars within Vietnam. Harkins replied, let's give these things a three or four month trial. He promised to change the setup if it failed to work. The controversy reflected an overall decentralization. After Michael V. Forrestal of the White House staff and Roger Hillsman of the State Department visited Vietnam in December 1962, they criticized the elaborate set-piece military operations and the use of air power. Too many people, they informed President Kennedy, were managing the American effort. There was no overall direction. They recommended a single strong executive, possibly a general, preferably a civilian, an ambassador, to dominate all departments and agencies in the country and to give a single thrust to the multiple activities. The U.S. Air Force Directorate of Plans drafted a position paper for possible use by General LeMay at the Joint Chiefs meeting of January 7, 1963. According to the paper, the situation was of the greatest concern, even though many U.S. programs enjoyed a long lead time. 
But when I see the Viet Cong continue to grow in strength, I can only assume that we are not winning. Army and Air Force doctrinal disputes ought to be taken out of Vietnam. SyncPAC's requests should receive prompt attention. Harkins was in need of the best possible advice through an Air Force deputy, and Anthus should manage all air operations. The major political obstacle of the war was Diem's failure to secure the real support and backing of his people. The major military obstacle was trying to erase the guerrillas in the face of a seemingly endless stream of replacements. Needed were greater U.S. air power until the Vietnamese Air Force could go it alone, in-country pilot training of Vietnamese, and destruction of Viet Cong food crops. We should consider now the application of selected measured sanctions against the North Vietnamese. Actions would range from infiltrating agents through air bombardment to blockade. Whatever was said at the January 7th meeting, the chiefs chose to send General Earl G. Wheeler, Army Chief of Staff, and a team of senior officers from the military services to Vietnam. The group's mission was to form a military judgment as to the prospects for a successful conclusion of the conflict within a reasonable period of time. The team spent January 14th through 30th in Vietnam, soon after the battle at Op Bac. The members examined the national campaign plan and endorsed the concept of many small operations with decentralized control, undertaken at an accelerated pace by each corps, division, and sector commander in his own area. They noted with approval that the tempo of small actions was quickening to 450 per month, and they looked for an upsurge in the future. The group was pleased with what appeared to be adequate coordination of political, economic, and military matters. Paying little attention to the Battle of Op Bac, the team heard General Harkins announce satisfaction with the air organization. His staff needed no stronger Air Force representation. The OV-1 Mohawks could do more than reconnaissance. Could they be armed with rockets? Could the rule prohibiting armed helicopters from returning fire except in self-defense be changed? The Joint Chiefs of Staff swiftly authorized U.S. Army helicopters to engage clearly identified Viet Cong elements, which are considered to be a threat to the safety of the helicopters and their passengers. Admiral Felt then permitted arming the Mohawks with 2.75-inch rockets. While the Wheeler team was sympathetic toward augmenting Air Force units, the civilian leadership in Washington was more concerned with turning the conflict over to the Vietnamese. On February 2nd, Hanoi called upon the International Control Commission to eject from Vietnam the U.S. Air Force units that were playing a key role and causing widespread damage. Secretary of State Rusk was disturbed. He could hardly prevent American reporters from observing and writing about U.S. operations. However, he wanted the embassy and MACV to release no information on American combat air actions. The United States, Rusk said, ought not to hand the communists an excuse to escalate hostilities. The U.S. newspapers publicized the authorization for American helicopters to fire on the enemy. Secretary McNamara refused to comment except to say that American military personnel were under instructions to fire their weapons only when their own safety was at stake. Secretary Rusk reiterated, Our policy remains that the American role in Vietnam be strictly limited to advisory, logistic, and training functions.
General Wheeler's assessment in January 1963 rang with optimism. The situation in Vietnam, Wheeler said, had been reoriented in the space of a year and a half from a circumstance of near desperation to a condition where victory is now a hopeful prospect. A heartening sign was the steep rise in American advisory strength, from 900 at the start of 1962 to more than 3,000. At first, there had been no advisors with battalions, but now there were over 400. In a year, the number of advisors helping province chiefs had grown from two to 100 or more. Though we have not given Ho Chi Minh any evidence that we are prepared to call him to account for helping keep the insurgency alive, Wheeler said, we are winning slowly in the present thrust. There was no compelling reason to change. Air Force officers on the team did not quite agree with General Wheeler's evaluation. They believed sizable and long-lasting U.S. help a must. The war could not be won quickly, nor could it be won finally, until the Vietnamese people got behind the government. This demanded military, political, and economic actions. U.S. assistance is vitally engaged in building a country, not in defending a weak country against superior forces. MACV intelligence estimates showed that the number of full-time Viet Cong guerrillas had risen through infiltration and local recruitment to between 22,000 and 25,000. Each month, about 500 stole into Vietnam by way of Laos and Cambodia. Late in January 1963, a meeting was reportedly held in the Chinese embassy at Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Representatives of Hanoi, the National Liberation Front, and the Soviets agreed to add 12 battalions to the Viet Cong. Eight were to be transferred from Laos and four recruited in Vietnam. To the Viet Cong, the Battle of Op Bac was apparently a major turning point in the war. It instilled confidence in their ability to fight American helicopters and armored vehicles. Enemy leaders took credit for a new tactic, the deliberately invited battle, described as wipe out enemy posts and annihilate enemy reinforcements. They would often resort to this tactic in the Mekong Delta, almost always to good advantage. On the Vietnamese side, there was a lull in military action after Op Bac. Admiral Felt believed the calm to have both visible and hidden meaning. The Vietnamese seemed to be in no hurry to launch operations. General Harkins, in February 1963, wrote President Diem urging him to swiftly exploit the initiative that his forces seemed to have seized from the foe. Time and weather, Harkins said, are either for us or against us. The communists, he added, must not be allowed to regroup or rest. We must attack and destroy them. We must hurt them so badly that they will be forced to apply all their remaining resources merely to survive. Otherwise, the Viet Cong might neutralize much of the gain we won at great cost and effort. But the Op Bac engagement and the American press coverage had damaged relations with the Diem government. Newspaper accounts of the battle aroused serious resentment in Vietnamese officials, particularly David Halberstam's criticism in the New York Times of Vietnamese performance. Newsmen spread their belief that U.S. advisors had died while trying to lead Vietnamese troops who would neither follow nor fight. Embittered Vietnamese leaders complained that correspondents were interested merely in splashing sensational news on the front pages when Americans were hurt. Madame No Dinh Yu recalled the presidential palace bombing when she and her children were in grave danger. 
She said that U.S. reports revealed solely an ill-conceived regret that the bombing had failed in its objective. The Wheeler Report commented on the mutual dislike and distrust between the Vietnamese government and the American press. Embarrassed by the news reports of Vietnamese battlefield misconduct, President Kennedy strove to repair the eroding trust between the two governments. In his State of the Union message to Congress on January 14th, he declared that the spearhead of aggression had been blunted in Vietnam. Signs of dissension and mistrust were all too obvious. Back in November 1962, reports had reached Admiral Felt that Diem was withdrawing more into seclusion and leaving many decisions to his brother, No Dien Nhu. Both sometimes regarded the numerous American advisors as an encroachment on Vietnamese sovereignty. They feared that the cautious U.S. policy in Laos mirrored a weakening interest in Vietnam. They were upset by Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield's report in February 1963. It said that after seven years and $4 billion of American aid, the same difficulties remain if indeed they have not been compounded. Vietnam was less stable and more removed from popularly responsible and responsive government. Did this foreshadow dwindling U.S. support? The defense minister scored American allegations of hit-or-miss Vietnamese bombing as a corrosive influence on the military effort. American attempts to help the government of Vietnam create an intelligence capability were probably seen by Diem as a threat to his regime. The Minister of Interior resented the involvement of Americans in the country as a danger to the Republic's internal politics. President Diem labeled the Special Forces Rural Aid Advisors and the Sector Advisors as particularly irritating. Even though U.S. economic assistance financed nearly all of the counterinsurgency, Diem objected to American controls over matching counterpart funds. He called them degrading to Vietnam's independence. In a series of private and public statements during April 1963, No Dinh dwelt upon U.S. infringements of Vietnamese sovereignty. Aid came, he said, with too many strings attached. He told CIA Chief John H. Richardson that it would help if the American presence were reduced anywhere from 500 to three or 4,000 men. Richardson got the impression that New feared an emerging U.S. protectorate. Diem, New said, had received many complaints from subordinates about their American counterparts. Publicly, New was quoted as demanding the withdrawal of over 2,000 U.S. advisors at lower unit levels. Obviously referring to Oppbach, he said that some American casualties had occurred because the advisors were daredevils who exposed themselves needlessly to enemy fire. Taking this statement as a forerunner of things to come, the Vietnamese Air Force commander alerted his key personnel to the possible withdrawal of U.S. forces. He warned them to conserve reserves, prepare to go it alone, and get ready for hard days ahead. The Vietnamese government did not officially request a reduction of American personnel, but news statements induced a review of U.S. troop levels evidence seemed to favor a lesser commitment of forces. Sir Robert Thompson in March had reported the government as beginning to win the shooting war against the Viet Cong, due chiefly to the American helicopters. He proposed a psychological ploy that Admiral Felt passed to the Joint Chiefs by message. 
if things go right by end of 1963, Felt said, we should take 1,000 military personnel out of Arvin at one time, make big proclamation out of this, and publicize widely. This would show, one, Arvin is winning, two, take steam out of anti-Diemites, and three, dramatically illustrate honesty of U.S. intentions. In April, a U.S. national intelligence estimate perceived improvement in the situation, despite the absence of persuasive signs that the Viet Cong had been grievously hurt. Ambassador Nolting in May depicted relations between Washington and Saigon as delicate, but the political and socioeconomic conditions were promising. An excellent rice crop brightened the economic outlook. Completion of about 50% of the strategic hamlet program extended shelter to 60% of the people in defended areas. During April, the Vietnamese armed forces took part in 900 offensive actions. These hopeful signs encouraged Secretary McNamara at his conference in Hawaii in May. He said he would remove 1,000 Americans from Vietnam by the end of the year to show that things were going well. He would try to pull out units in lieu of individuals, and upon departure, their equipment would be turned over to the Vietnamese. The conflict was not a U.S. war, and the United States did not intend to fight it. Since more Americans were still arriving in Vietnam, units and individuals then en route were to continue their travel. There would be no personnel increases, however, either temporary or permanent. Each of the armed services was to take a comparable cut. To hurt operations the least, most of the returnees would come from logistic units. In November and December, 2nd Air Division would lose 244 people. Maybe McNamara's action impressed the Vietnamese. In June, the Joint General Staff ordered all ground forces to operate a minimum of 20 days every month, starting July 1st. This was to be a total general offensive to attain complete annihilation of the enemy and complete Vietnamese control. General Harkins was enthusiastic. The all-out campaign was soon to begin in earnest. He knew the strategy, saturate the countryside with small and large military actions, was correct. It would fragment and destroy the Viet Cong. Unfortunately, the Viet Cong had embarked on their own general offensive. End of chapter 14.